Well, thank you. So good to be in worship again. It's been a busy couple of weeks uh, for me. You know, two, the last time I was in here at church, we were just having the annual meeting and talking about the budget and our spending plan for the next year and some of the maintenance projects that are going to be happening around here. And so, um, man, that was just a huge boost of comp- confidence. Uh, us as the leaders of the church, we've been kind of working at those things for a really long time. And so there's always that culmination of, it's always that worry you're dealing just with groups of people like, there's always, there's a problem and then there's a solution. And I think all of us have had that experience where you get brought in at the solution stage and you didn't have any of the benefit of the process beforehand. And so whenever you're talking about church or, or groups of people that as a leader, that's always a challenge to kind of bring people along. And so um, thanks to Sam and the leadership team and all the hard work that they put in, it was um, really, 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 uh, really, really showed. And so thank you. Uh, uh, as I mentioned last week or two weeks ago, whenever that was, January something, January 23rd, I flew. So I had the annual meeting and the next day I got up, I flew to Chicago and uh, denominational meetings there. It's kind of an annual pastor's gathering. And uh, I spent like 10 years in and around Chicago and then moved to Washington State. Corey and I moved to Washington State. Both of our kids were born in Bellingham and then we've lived here and they've never, our kids have never been to Chicago. And so it just doesn't happen. I decided this, this is how we're going to fix this. This year, Bryn is going to come and uh, we're going to do a little tour afterwards. And next year, Mark will come and do a little tour. But man, we had a great time. Here's some pictures. Um, Chicago, go to the next one. You, you, we got to stay downtown, which by the way, you know, COVID traveling is awesome because all the hotels are like, please, please come and stay with us. And they have really great deals. And so we got to stay downtown Chicago. That's a view from our window. It was gorgeous. We ate lots of uh, pizza at Giordano's. I know. I miss that place. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we saw some cool museums. This is the uh, Field Museum. That's a Titanosaurus, I believe. And you can't really tell how big that is until you see the next picture. That's the femur, okay? It's like the thigh bone. The thing is huge, massive. Uh, Field Museum is always cool. You can never see it all. Um, we also went to the Shedd Aquarium. Is there another picture after that? Oh, that's it. Uh, uh, It was just fun to be uh, hanging out with Bryn and riding the L and and being in a city where I graduated from college, and it was just really spectacular. So thanks to Phil, who preached last week, and for the message that he brought us and our church. We really needed that. Uh, We're starting a new series. The new series is called Who Matters? It's Compassion in God's world, and it's very fitting for the month of February because, you know, it's Valentine's Day, love is in the air, and we're supposed to care for everyone, and, and we don't, right? Um, no, it's, it's just, I, I'm, so, I'm so amazed at, like, how angry most of us are. It's, you know, all the, the COVID leftovers, and we're still trying to figure this out. And so compassion seemed like a very fitting thing to talk about as followers of Jesus We're called to love God. We're called to love others. And so a huge component of loving others is just learning to have compassion. And so all of this starts with Jesus. That's where we're going to begin today. We're going to be turning to Luke chapter 4 to see kind of what underpinned Jesus's compassion towards others. And um, before we get there, it's important to kind of lay out some context for Jesus. And Luke chapter 4 begins with the temptation of Christ. And this is, you know, after Jesus was baptized, 
Jesus was led. It said he was full of the Spirit out into the desert. And uh, he was immediately, he was, he was tested by the devil for a period of 40 days. And uh, you can imagine, he was fasting. And so, you know, if you're fasting for that length of time, you're going to be really hungry. So the first temptation was about bread. Jesus turned this bread Last time we put Tomas on that side of the booth. Pizza. He was tempted with Chicago deep dish. Pizza. Jesus, turn this, turn these stones into bread. That was Satan's temptation. And Jesus, you know, responds with a Bible verse, you know, people can't live by bread alone. The next temptation is about Jesus's ambition. And uh, I'm, I'm outlining this because it's an important start to our series here. The second temptation, which it may go in different orders because I think Matthew and Mark also cover the temptation, but in Luke, the second temptation is about ambition. He, he, he offers Jesus like, here's all the kingdoms of the world. You might remember this. Like, I'll give you all the authority, all the splendor, all the glory if you just bow down and worship me. And so here's Jesus could fast forward to the end and get everything he wants, but Jesus says, no, I'm going to worship God alone. The third temptation, so that, that temptation is about ambition and power. The third one is about approval. He's, you know, throw yourself from the top of the temple, you know, prove that God really loves you. The angels will catch you. And Jesus, you know, again, says no to Satan. So Henry Nouwen uh, is a, a writer that was really important to me kind of in my, in my college years and early 20s. And he has this, this wonderful little devotional book called In the Name of Jesus. And uh, I loved it because, you know, it, first of all, it was only like this big and had like 60 pages. I mean, you can read it in two hours, but really profound stuff. And he characterizes these temptations as the temptation to be relevant, turning stones to bread. I mean, that's cool. People can actually use that. Uh, the temptation to be powerful, the temptation to be spectacular. And I'd like for us to pause and reflect on this for just a moment, because these temptations are things that all of us encounter often. We encounter them individually, but we also encounter them as a church in our mission and, and what we're trying to accomplish in our community. You know, like, hey, we want to be a church that's relevant, that people think is useful. So we want to we want to you know do useful things in our community. We want to be. Um, you know, we want to gain people's approval. We want, to, we want to gather a crowd. We want to do things that are spectacular on Sunday morning so people show up and maybe they'll hear about Jesus. I mean, that's a temptation that we have as a church. But I think the most prevalent temptation right now for Christians, whether it's individuals or whether it's as, as communities like churches, I think the most prevalent temptation is the one to be powerful. Man, I see and hear a whole bunch of people who I know love Jesus, who I know want to follow and serve God, but they're pursuing, you know, the politics that are in our, you know, it's the kingdom. We'll give you all the authority and splendor in the world. It's the kingdom building stuff. It's the politics. And I'm really growing weary of watching Christians, leaders especially, pursue political power. And it's all encapsulated in very partisan politics 
Um, it's usually justified because I have this platform that God's given me. And whenever I hear that, I'm like, has God given you that? Because when I read my Bible, when I look at the temptations of Christ, I see him stiff-arming political power with a vengeance. And what's really even weird to me is that when he had a chance to use political power, he like weirdly ignored it. This is Palm Sunday. They're hailing him as the king coming into Jerusalem. Here's, here's your opportunity to fast forward to the end, get everything that you want to do, Jesus, if you just push the button. And he doesn't do it. So as a follower of Christ, I wrestle with that. I wrestle with that. And I think it's a temptation to, to just to be powerful. You know, as long as the kingdom of God comes into existence and all of our values are supported, like who cares how it gets there? That's an end justifying the, you know, the end justifying the means. And no, I mean, see Jesus in the second temptation. You know, I, I passionately believe we as Christians need to be involved with the political process, but not at the expense of forgetting who has the power. And man, it's so tempting right now to just jump in and, and flex our muscles or run our mouth however we might want to. I'm not that, not. personally, I don't think that's where Jesus is calling me. And so this ties in to, to compassion. You know, when <laughs> worship the Lord, your God, serve him only. It ties in because um, all of us, well, I think all of us, maybe I shouldn't say all of us, it's tempting to pursue a more compassionate and a more just world by any means possible. And Jesus would say, no, it's not. So what does that mean for us? In fact, Jesus says, follow me. So that first part of Luke chapter 4 is really about, uh, is really kind of a description of uh, what Jesus won't do. And then he turns to the passage that we're going to look at this morning. This is, well, I'm not going to do that. But this is what I'm going to do. And so here we begin. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. This is right out of the desert of temptation. Returns to Galilee. News about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Man, that one just, I'm like, you really did that? Talk about a mic drop moment. Yeah, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Like, 
wow, isn't this the carpenter's son? I mean, if we read on in this passage, that's kind of eventually what happens. But Jesus leaves the wilderness. He returns to Galilee. He begins teaching in the synagogues. And this groundswell of popularity kind of spreads everywhere. It says, everyone praised him. Isn't that interesting? Everyone praised him. You know, in the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, people were able to hear what Jesus had to say without much resistance. Man, this is Jesus. He's so smart, man. Jesus is... Everyone praised him. And that's about right. I, I think that any serious study of Jesus, like as a person, and, and consideration of who he is, it has the same effect on everyone. You know, at first you're kind of amazed... You're kind of impressed, but the longer you consider Jesus, the longer that you reflect on what he has to say, the more discomfort you feel. Amen? Because Jesus is going to challenge you. Jesus is going to challenge your preconceived notions. Jesus is going to challenge your, your assumptions. He's going to, uh, your perspectives, your deepest uh, heart-held beliefs. Because Jesus isn't just interested in changing your mind. He wants to change you, your whole life, and everything about it. That's uncomfortable. That's a little scary. But for people who've decided to take that plunge, that leap of faith, it's also one of the most life-giving and freeing things you could ever think of. So Jesus isn't just interested in changing your mind. He's, he wants to change your life. And when he says he returns in the power of the Spirit, in my mind, you know, it's in the power of the Spirit. You know, this is a little bit like Star Wars, okay? It's like Luke returning from training with Yoda. And I know that my theology professor is groaning somewhere, wherever he is this day, and, you know, hanging his head in shame, because no, the Holy Spirit isn't the force. Luke isn't Jesus and... Yoda isn't the devil. Even though, as a kid, I was really scared of him. He was weird looking. Um, but it's this whole idea that Jesus has this experience, and he returns from that in the fullness and in the power of the Spirit. You see, demonstrating faithfulness to God, aligning yourself with his purpose, with God's mission, being equipped to serve him, empowers you. We can learn a lot just by this little, like, yeah, Jesus was tempted, but he got in line with what God was saying and what God wanted him to do. And when, when you and I do that in our life, we start to draw power from God. And I know that that sounds like some kind of spiritual recipe that you, you add this and you add this and you add this and then you get this. But we know that's not necessarily true because otherwise we'd all be really good at baking. Amen? But there are ingredients. And when they're present, and when, when, when God's over it and we submit to him, this empowerment that can only come from the Spirit enters our life. And uh, that's something that all of us as followers of Christ should strive to do. And as it relates to the Christian life, as it relates to learning compassion in God's world, you know, 
there's a, th- a compassion fatigue, the word. That's what's going to happen. If you're just pursuing, you know, compassionate things or justice-oriented things or whatever it might be, if you're just doing that on your own willpower, that's where compassion fatigue comes from. But when it's God's power, he can, I mean, he can work miracles through us. That's what we want to do as followers of Christ. So the other significance here is we kind of read through this and another significance has to do with Jesus teaching in the synagogues as was his custom. And that tells me, tells all of us something that's really important that we might overlook. And that's that Jesus attended the synagogue. And um, that's what he just, that's just what he did on the Sabbath. And the Jewish Sabbath, you know, begins on Friday night ends on Saturday night, and so I'm guessing that this would have been sometime on Saturday that he would have been attending the synagogue. And there's uh, what happened, so Jews did this for millennia. They attended synagogue. If they weren't able to go up to the temple and worship in their own little communities, they've had these, these gathering places. They'd read the, the Torah or the prophets like Isaiah. They'd, there's often some singing. Uh, there was uh, a community of people, a spiritual community, Jesus participated in that. And you're going, wow, that sounds a lot like church. Well, you know, the first Christians were Jewish. So they would go to synagogue on one day. They would go, they would gather with followers of Jesus on Sunday, the Lord's day, and they'd worship the risen Christ. And so I throw that out um, because don't give up on church thinking that you don't need it. Thinking that following Jesus is just me and me and him. Yes. And you also need God's people. And there's so many folks right now who used to attend church. The last two years have not been kind to church attendance across the United States, maybe across the world, I don't know. There's kind of been a reckoning. People asking Why do I do this? How is this relevant to my life? Well, it turns out in Jesus' day, they had many of the same issues that we're struggling with now. I I was studying this passage this week and I ran across this guy, Lloyd Ogilvie, and he wrote this in 1983. He said, the synagogue had lost its relevance to the everyday and was concerned about the cultivation of mind and soul through study and praise. Unfortunately, the synagogue has become the model for all too many Christian churches. We come together to improve ourselves, to learn, to grow, to think. There is nothing wrong with that. But if that is the end product, there is something very wrong with it. So why this is important for us to keep in mind is that the church is not a self-help organization. The church is not just an institution. The church isn't even a place where you go. The church is a people. And we're disciples of Jesus. You're going to hear me say that word disciple probably a lot in the next few months. Because it's a tweak that I think we need to make as followers of Jesus. You see, we're meant to model our life. We want to imitate the life 
We want to become like Jesus. That's what we do in church. We're a group of Jesus followers. We're a group of disciples. And this is a very different proposition than just learning about Jesus, which I think we do really good, you know, educating folks about spiritual things, about the Bible. That is not the same as actually knowing Jesus, knowing the God who gave us the Bible. We all need a starting point. We all need information to begin our journey, but that's just it. Being a disciple means being on a journey. There's motion from information to imitating. And imitating might not sound like an attractive word because to us that kind of means fake. Not in the sense that it applies to Jesus. It means this journey where we're becoming like him. And that's what we want to do. That's who we want to be about as a follower, as followers of Jesus. That might be intimidating to you because whenever you say, oh, you, I want to be like Jesus, you know, I always judge people when they say that because it's like, oh, you got a long ways to go. <clears throat> we all do, right? There's grace in this journey. There's patience. There's lots of mercy. And that's really why we need one another is because all of us are broken. All of us are on this journey at some point. I might not be very good at forgiving others. But maybe one of you is, and you can help me. You know, I might not be very good at breaking bad habits and establishing healthy ones, but I bet some of you are. You know, I might not be very good at hearing God's voice doing what he says, but I know some of you are, and I can ask for help. We can do this together. We can become like Jesus. Um, like I said, as a church, that's the direction we want to go. We, we don't want to just go to church. We are the church. And wherever I go, the kingdom of God is within me. And I can incarnate Jesus wherever I go. He's present because I'm there. He's with me. And if we can change that mindset away from just, you know, the territory of this is where we meet God and this is church to like, yeah, and wherever we go, because I'm like Jesus. I can incarnate him through the power of the Holy Spirit wherever I am. I don't know what. We take three people, 10 people. If we're doing that, if we're all doing that in North Bend, this becomes a very different place. That's who we want to be as a church. Um, and because we're starting a sermon series about compassion, I'm going to keep tying this message back to that trait. Jesus showed a lot of compassion. That's one of the things that we want to emulate. You know, I, I want to be like Jesus in the way that he treated others, especially with compassion. And uh, Jesus picks up the scroll of Isaiah, and he he finds where it is written. We'll put this on the screen again for you. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, like all prophetic texts, the people sitting there that day with Jesus heard some things and missed others. 
Just like us, you know, 2,000 years later, we read this text, we see some things that they didn't, but we miss others. And so, you know, it's important for us to just kind of sit with with these. You know, there's layers of meaning here. And when we read this, we understand that Jesus is literally going to heal people of physical blindness. But he's also going to heal people of spiritual blindness. He's literally setting oppressed people free. And by that, we mean people like there's demonic oppression that they're experiencing that Jesus is going to free them from. Um, There's societal oppression that they're experiencing that that Jesus is going to free people from. But more broadly than, than just those forms of oppression, Jesus wants to set prisoners free. He's talking about the sin that so easily entangles every single one of us. Jesus is going to free us from that. He's going to proclaim good news to the poor. Who are the poor? Economically poor? Yes. The reason in Jesus' day that that that's in there and means so much is because they had this, well, if you're poor, you screwed up. Like you did something wrong, you deserve to be poor. And so the rest of society is just going to move past you. Jesus is saying that's not how God works. You're never outside of God's blessing. But he's also talking about the poor in spirit, about those who feel broken and stuck and left behind and unloved. And Jesus wants to say to them, just like he wants to say to us, you know, the kingdom of God is here. It's for you. It's for me. kingdom of God is not just for a select group of people who have it all together. It's for you. It's for me. The kingdom of God is good news because it's not just for a, you know, one ethnicity or one culture. It's for all of us through all time. That's the good news. And when Jesus talked about this and he says you know today this is fulfilled and he sits down you know people didn't like it they liked it when jesus talked about the kingdom being you know for them like he was going to start this revolution and they're going to kick the romans out and they were going to make the nation of israel like it used to be but as they started to understand what jesus wanted to do they didn't like it because jesus wanted to welcome all people And so that's how this connects into what we're going to be talking about the rest of this month. It's about who matters in God's world. You see, God cares for all people, not just the really smart ones or the really popular ones or the really well-off ones or the really influential ones. No, Jesus cares for all people. We all matter in God's eyes. And so as we go home and about our week and start moving around in our own world, I mean, that's the question we ask ourselves is how can we show compassion? How can we extend God's welcome to others in our world? Not just to the popular and influential and those who look like they have it all together, but to everyone. How can I begin to do that? That can become our prayer. Lord, open our eyes to those 
who need your compassion most, the people who I might be a little uncomfortable extending it to, but you love them too. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Lord, um, I feel like compassion is kind of a moving target. You know, some days it's really, really easy uh, to feel compassion towards, you know, those in my family, towards my friends. Uh, Other days it's not. Sometimes it's really easy to, to be compassionate, to... We're just so disconnected. We see things in the media and it's so far away, it's hard to have a connection. But, you know, just in, the, in our day-to-day lives as we move about the world, Lord, you put people in our paths. You put situations in our paths. Help us to hear that Holy Spirit nudge towards them and take a step to be compassionate, to let them know that someone cares. Everyone matters in your world, Lord. We thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I'd like to invite our confirmation students to come on in. They're going to join us uh, as we close in communion today. And for any of you that uh, haven't had a chance yet to get one of these, Dave is in the bag. You just raise your hand and he'll bring around one of the cups. And this is open to anyone who has put their faith and their trust in Jesus and made them the leader of their life. And as we begin, I want to just invite you to take a moment of silent prayer and confession to ready your hearts. And so please take a moment and do so now. Lord, we confess our sins, the things that we've done, and the things that we've left undone. We confess them, Lord, cleanse them from us, and help us to follow you in newness of life. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, uh, some of you have gotten a, a head start already. If you need to prep your communion supplies at home, uh, invite you to take the wafer, the bread, and hear the words of institution. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a simple loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body, which for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I'll invite you to take the body which is broken for you and the blood of Christ which is shed for you.